Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 337, The Rise of King Edmund Ironsides. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Lloyd, Leah, and Jeffrey for signing up already. Can you feel it? It feels like a lull before the storm. Athelred unread is gone, and Normandy is now officially on the board. So 1066 is on the doorstep. But that lull is an illusion that you experience because you know what's coming next. For the people who were living during this time, though, things on the island were heating up, and they had no idea what was coming. Instead, they were dealing with a completely different problem. And what you're about to hear is part one of a two-part series on one of England's best stories that you've likely never heard. It's the story of the rise and fall of King Edmund Ironsides. This is a story of a forgotten civil war, of a legendary warrior, and of the fall of the line of Alfred the Great. And it's a story that starts in the North. We tend to think about England as a national body that's always been. But at this point in its history, it was a new thing. It had only been a kingdom for a few generations, and critically, Northumbria wasn't always part of it. And even when it was, it wasn't all that pleased about it. Northumbria liked to do its own thing. And if you were a king who wanted to hang on to Northumbria, you had to use both hands. And the problem with using both hands is that you can't do anything else. So... Now that Uhtred was dead, having been killed by Thurbrand the Hold in what was likely an ambush planned by King Canute and Edric Strayona, the critical question that was facing new King Canute was who would hold on to Northumbria. The record indicates that the northern region of Northumbria went to Uhtred's brother, Aedwulf Cuddle, a name that translates to Aedwulf the Cuddlefish. And I don't know why he was called Cuddlefish, and it will honestly drive me insane, probably for the rest of my life. But Uhtred's brother Aedwulf, who apparently had the Innsmouth look, was ruling over the northern territory of Bernicia. And that seems simple enough. But we're also told that King Canute gave dominion over the north to another man, this time his advisor, Eric Lathier. In fact, the chronicle states that Eric was ruling over Northumbria as Uhtred had done. Which means if we're counting, we now have at least four hands that are holding on to Northumbria. But more importantly, it seems like we're missing part of the story, because we have two men holding on to that territory, not including the king. So was Eric ruling over a united Northumbria? Or was it split up and he was cool with Aedwulf just handling the northern portion? It's not clear, but either way, Eric Lathier clearly wasn't ruling as, quote, Uhtred had done, end quote because Uhtred's brother still was holding half the kingdom, even if he was just an underking. Even weirder, Eric Lathier wasn't even in Northumbria during this point. He'd actually ridden south with Canute when he marched on London. So what was going on there? Well, there are multiple theories, but the most likely one, in my opinion, is that Northumbria had actually been split up following the death of Uhtred, and his brother Aedwulf likely did have control of the north, as the records indicate. And as for Eric Lathier, 
Well, if he had any power over the northern portion, you know, the old kingdom of Bernicia, it was likely ceremonial. His real power was likely over the southern portion, in the heavily Danish region of York. But it still gets a little bit more messy. Because as time went forward, Thurbrand the Hold and his family remained prominent in the region. And this fact, along with Eric Lathier continuing to travel with Canute, suggests that actually the day-to-day governance of York was the work of Thurbrand the Hold, and that Eric was likely a ruler in title only, and probably just drew an income from the region. And the reason for Canute's apparent light touch here was likely strategic. You see, giving the official title to his companion, but actually allowing the rule to go to the locals, was probably due to the fact that Northumbria was Northumbria, and Canute had all of England that he had to take hold of. So he simply didn't have two hands that he could spare. So instead, he took a hands-off approach. And that suggests that his hold on the territory was tenuous at best. And it also might explain why we don't see any record of Northumbrian forces marching with Canute when he continued his campaign of 1016. Northumbria might have submitted to Canute, but it doesn't appear to have been acting as a loyal subject. But that being said, Canute wasn't the only leader in the region who was unsure about his status in the old Dane law. King Edmund Ironsides, who'd only just been proclaimed king, was also in a really tight spot. You see, Edmund did have a claim to the English throne through blood, as he was the eldest living son of King Athelred. But he was also in a weakened position, politically and militarily. His main base of power was in the five boroughs. So Lincoln, Nottingham, Stamford, Leicester, and Derby. And that region had sided with him during his rebellion against his father, King Athelred, only a few years earlier. But King Edmund's claim on the five boroughs was tenuous at best. The five boroughs had been recently operating independently. After all, that was how King Edmund launched his rebellion. And the truth was, as part of the old Dane law, it wasn't as dependent on the systems that were managed by the English crown as their neighbors were to the south. Nor did they have the strong cultural link to the House of Wessex that they did. And that was a problem for Edmund, because the House of Wessex was his house. Basically, the five boroughs weren't following Edmund because of any kind of particular degree of loyalty to the crown. Instead, Edmund had ascended to the seat of the five boroughs through a combination of audacity and marriage. And frankly, it was mostly the marriage. As you might remember, the chief men of the five boroughs previously had been Morcar and Sigafirth, but then Edric Streona had them murdered, and King Athelred had Sigafirth's widow Eldgith imprisoned. And Eldgith was almost certainly the daughter of a major regional dynasty, which was also one of the last links to her deceased spouse, Sigafirth. So when Edmund went to married her, and then took possession of her lands, well, that was how he acquired his claim to rule over the five boroughs. But it's not exactly a straight shot, right? He was essentially the Midlands' stepdad. And the main thing that was keeping the peace right now was that marriage and the fact that this region hated Athelred and Edric Strayona, and Edmund had been standing in opposition to them. But now Athelred was dead, and almost all of England was answering to Canute, which meant that at any moment, the five boroughs might remember that their stepdad wasn't their real dad. They might also remember that Canute was married to Elf Gifu of Northampton, who was a noble lady from a powerful Midlands dynasty. 
which meant that Canute basically had the same level of dynastic claim that Edmund did. Yikes. And then it gets worse. You see, Edmund had been proclaimed king by the leading men who were in London with him. But those weren't the only important people in England. There were plenty of powerful people who were outside of London, and they had another idea entirely. John of Worcester tells us that at Southampton, just down the way from the ancient West Saxon capital of Winchester, Canute gathered with, quote, all the bishops, abbots, eldermen, and other nobles of England, end quote, and there they elected him king in exchange for a promise that he would govern well. Actually, it was even a bit worse than that. Here's the quote from John. Quote, The bishops, abbots, eldermen, and all who ranked as nobles in England assembled together and unanimously elected Canute their lord and king. And having come to him at Southampton and renounced and repudiated all the descendants of King Athelred, concluded peace with him and swore fealty to him. And he, on his part, swore that both as respected divine and secular affairs, he would be faithful to his duties as lord over them. End quote. So Canute promised to govern justly, and in exchange, virtually all of the high-ranking people in England promised that they were done with Athelred's family. Just done with them. All of them. His kids, their kids, their kids' kids, if there were any. Every last one of them. Done. Forever. No more House of Wessex. Canute and his line would now hold the throne. And by doing this, Canute had gone old school. The Danish king had reached back to the old Anglo-Saxon days when the West Saxons gathered together and chose their leaders rather than just having them appointed by birth. And by doing this, he exposed Edmund's greatest weakness. He lacked support. Even a casual observer will be able to see that Canute had a far larger and far more representative English council who were proclaiming him king. And remember, primogeniture the system where the eldest son inherits rule, was still being worked out during this period. It was not at all clear, even without Canute, whether Edmund was going to get the throne upon Athelred's death. His younger half-brother, Edward, had been looking like quite the contender, in fact. And actually, that uncertainty very well may have been why he seized the title of King of the Five Boroughs in the first place. And so Canute had, in many ways, a stronger political position and the stronger claim to the English throne, even down to those critical five boroughs. And if the men of the five boroughs abandoned Edmund, what hope would he and the people of London have left? So we can guess that as Athelred was being buried at St. Paul's, King Edmund was sitting in London, wondering if he would be next. And it turned out he didn't have to wait too long. After Canute's election to kingship in Southampton, he and his men sailed towards the Thames. And sometime between May 7th and May 9th of 1016, they were sighted outside of London. They disembarked at Greenwich, the same location that Thorkell the Tall and his Yams Vikings had made their encampment years before. And that might have been intentional, as Scandinavian sources indicate that Thorkell was now supporting Canute in his campaign. Once on land, Canute's army advanced upon London and began to dig, quote, a large ditch, end quote, on the southern bank, presumably in the form of a canal. And then they drug their ships upstream of London Bridge. Once through, they set about digging a second ditch, 
this one on the north bank, to encircle the city. But London wasn't going to give up ground so easily. According to the Scandinavian sources, Ulfgell Snelling was there. He was the fearsome East Anglian commander who had shown time and time again that he wouldn't shy away from battle. And as East Anglia isn't mentioned as having submitted to Canute, it is entirely possible that he would have been in London preparing to defend his king. And according to the Scandinavian sources, Ulfgell wasn't just out there patrolling the walls. He was in the field with his men, battling the oncoming Danes. We're told that to the west of London, he fought against a man named Eric of Laid, and Ulfgell was probably trying to prevent Canute and his army from establishing a Danish bridgehead at Brentford. And so he fought stoutly. But even mighty Ulfgell wasn't enough to hold the Danes back. And in the end, the bridgehead was established, guarding the Thames. We're also told that Canute's men then positioned at least a portion of their tents and encampments at Southwark, across the river. In doing so, London was surrounded on all sides, even across the bridge. And so King Edmund and his supporters and all the people of London were now trapped. It was a victory for Canute's army, though Ulfkel made them bleed for it. The Chronicle then tells us that after the siege lines were established, Canute's forces began to assault the city regularly. However, quote, the citizens bravely withstood them, end quote. But the Chronicle doesn't tell us any more than that. Thankfully, Old Norse poetry takes it a little farther, adding that, quote, every morning the lady on the Thames bank sees the sword dyed in blood, end quote. So we can assume that this fight was getting ugly. And as for the people within the walls, well, the land within the walls of London had plenty of room for things like markets and housing, and it did also have access to potable water. But the city still relied on the outside world for basic foods, like grain. And that meant that the people of London would soon start to go hungry. And it's into this situation that the account of Thietmar of Merseburg becomes important. Now, Thietmar claims that in the face of the Danish siege of London by Canute and his brother Harold, the Dowager Queen Emma sued for peace. And he says that Canute responded to her appeal by demanding an enormous Danegeld, as well as hostages. But he also demanded that she hand over her sons, Edmund and Athelstan. But not as hostages. They would simply be killed. As Thietmar tells it, Emma was disturbed by this, but she ultimately agreed. However, before her sons could be handed over, Edmund and Athelstan heard of the plot and they managed to escape and went on to wage war against the Danes. And during one of these battles, Edmund died. But Athelstan went on to free London with the help of the Britons. And so that is the story that Thietmar tells. And the problem with his account is that it's obviously impossible. The most obvious issue here is that Athelstan was long dead. Furthermore, Edmund and Athelstan weren't actually Emma's sons. And then you have the fact that Harold didn't visit his brother from Denmark. And when we look at a later account called The Praise of Queen Emma, which was an account of Emma's life, there's no mention of the defense. Instead, instead that account claims that she was in Normandy at the time. So the fact is, there is no way that this story is completely accurate. So why am I telling it to you? Well, it's one of our more detailed accounts of what happened at London, and it's possible 
that while it is wrong on a lot, it still might be telling us what actually happened. Kind of. You see, unlike Thietmar's previous account, which detailed the story of Thorkell and the Archbishop, for this one, Thietmar didn't have an eyewitness. And as such, he was likely dealing with word-of-mouth stories about a faraway land. And the fact is, games of telephone can get mixed up like that. But the root might still be correct. For example, while Athelstan wasn't alive, Edwig was. So there were two living sons of Athelred who were likely in the city of London at the time, Edmund and Edwig. Furthermore, Emma appears to have had a ruthless streak and a talent for self-preservation. And we're going to see later on that agreeing to toss Edmund and Edwig to the wolves wouldn't exactly be out of character for her. And while the praise of Queen Emma failed to mention London in that account, that fact isn't as cut and dry as you might think. Because the praise of Queen Emma also goes to great lengths to put as much distance between her and Athelred as possible. In fact, it even goes so far to imply that their children, Edward Atheling, Goda, and Alfred Atheling, were actually the children of Canute, not Athelred. So, at the time of the writing, the author might not have wanted to admit that she was in London with her first husband, and then she stayed there as the Dowager Queen. So while there are some serious problems with Thietmar's account, you can see the shape of something that might be true. And sure enough, some historians like Anne Williamson argue that Thietmar is a factual account that had simply become badly garbled by the time that it reached the scribe. But no matter how it went down, all the sources agree that after the defenders of London, which likely included Ulfgell Snelling, failed to hold back Canute's fleet, London found itself encircled by a great ditch with bridgeheads and bulwarks preventing escape. But somehow, King Edmund left the city of London. They all agree on that. Now, the Chronicle doesn't give us timing, so it's possible that he might have escaped after sensing that Emma was going to betray him, as Thietmar claimed. Or maybe he was already out in the field when Canute arrived. Or perhaps he left the city while the siege lines were still being established. Perhaps that was what the struggle between Ulfgell and Eric of Lade was all about. Furthermore, while the praise of Queen Emma denies that she was there, it does give us a slightly different view of what was going on within London, and that also might help illuminate what may have happened. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in this version, Emma wasn't in London at all during the siege. Instead, the praise points the finger at the citizens of London, saying that they began to lose hope and offered to surrender the city to Canute. This caused a division within the city, and the Londoners who balked at the idea and remained loyal to the crown and wanted to continue fighting chose to flee with Edmund into the field rather than surrender with their neighbors to Canute. Afterwards, Canute, taking the city up on its offer, entered London, but he immediately got the heebie-jeebies and sensed that he might be walking into a trap. So he retreated with his men to their base on the Isle of Sheppey and washed his hands of it. So that's the praise. And both Thietmar and the praise of Emma are more detailed than what is given in the Chronicle. But the fact is, we can't know for certain what in those accounts is real and what is fiction. So all we can really hang our hat on, at least according to the Chronicle, is that after the siege lines were formed and the Danes began throwing themselves at the Londoners in assault after assault, somehow... King Edmund was out in the field, 
so he had to have gotten out somehow. But while he wasn't defending London, Edmund wasn't running away either. He was in Wessex, in the territory that had just housed large numbers of high-ranking men who had all promised to forsake him and his family for all time. He was essentially in enemy territory, and that meant it was game time. He intended to regain the loyalty of the traitorous nobles who had turned against his family and against him. And the Chronicle heavily implies that Edmund wasn't going on a charm offensive here either. We're told he invaded Wessex. And the characterization in the records give the impression that Edmund was forcefully bringing the nobles back in line with the House of Wessex. Very forcefully. The noble culture of England had changed. It had grown decadent. But Edmund, like his elder brother Athelstan, for reasons that are unclear, was cut from a different cloth. And like his great-great-great-grandfather, Alfred, it seems that Edmund Ironsides had decided to begin a guerrilla war, and he was now seeking to turn Canute's new subjects against him. It was exactly the kind of tactic that was likely to work on the aristocratic nobles of Wessex. You see, these aristocrats had no desire to fight. They just weren't up for it. That's why they submitted to Canute in the first place. So now, Edmund was offering them a similar choice. Either fight me or submit to me. And it was a choice that many of them eagerly accepted. But not all of them. Based on the entries, it appears that Edmund acquired the support of the western shires and portions of Mercia following his campaign to get his kingdom back. But the southern shires stayed put. Perhaps they are too close to Canute's army and the siege lines around London. I don't know. But whatever the reason, Edmund found the bulk of his support in the west and in the midlands. But that would have to be enough. Because Canute wasn't going to wait to let this movement grow. And while Canute's army was locked up in the Siege of London, and sieges do take a long time, his army was vast. He could maintain siege lines while still sending other forces to root out and destroy this rebel king and his paltry army. So that appears to have been what he did. And suddenly, we have an astounding parallel to the guerrilla campaign of Alfred the Great. The House of Wessex was once again working to regain the throne from a Danish conqueror by using asymmetrical warfare. Unfortunately, we don't know Edmund's movements the way we knew Alfred's. So I can't tell you precisely where Edmund and his army were, nor what they were doing. I can't point you to heropaths that they might have been moving along, or anything like that. But I do find it interesting that the first battle between Edmund and the Danes took place at Pencilwood. See, Pencilwood is exactly the sort of terrain that favored the old English style of battle. The landscape was custom-made for defensive warfare, offering a thick wood as well as an Iron Age hill fort that could be used to protect their flanks. It was a landscape that would force the Danes to advance directly on the English shield wall. And there's something else about this location that makes it interesting. Pencilwood was only a dozen miles from Alfred's old marshy headquarters at Athelney. And perhaps that was mere coincidence, and the Danish army was simply moving through the region of Dorset, Somerset, and Wiltshire, as they had done the year before, and at the same time, Edmund also happened to be in the area. We don't know for certain, just like we don't know precisely what Edmund and his army were doing. Maybe they were stalking those Danes. Maybe they were taken by surprise, 
Or perhaps this was a predetermined meeting spot where Edmund had summoned the forces of the region and he was holding it, waiting for his supporters to make their way along the Herapaths to his banners, and the Danes happened to catch wind of it. I don't know. We're not told. But if he was using the marshes the way his ancestor had done, that certainly would explain why this battle took place here. Something else we're left in the dark about are the details of the battle. We're merely told that they fought. They don't say who won, how it was fought, nothing. But given that King Edmund continued in the field, we can surmise that the Danes didn't win. And at best, the battle resulted in a stalemate. And that alone tells us actually a great deal. In particular, it tells us something about the Ferd and the people who fought in it. For 40 years, the English have been kicked up one side of the island and down the other. And often, these battles that they were fighting were essentially forfeited, sometimes with the Ferd running before even forming a battle line. It had been over a generation since the Ferd had been a force to be reckoned with. But then along comes Edmund, and suddenly, everything changes. And that suggests that leadership was playing a large role in what happened in the previous decades. And now that England had a warrior king, it was ready to fight. Furthermore, while the stories don't credit Edmund with victory on this first battle, he did survive, and that gave the rebel king more time to recruit. And it looks like he was recruiting in that very same region, because we're told that sometime after midsummer, Edmund fought a second battle with the Danes at Sherston, which was in that same western border region of Somerset, Gloucestershire, and Wiltshire. And sure enough, this time, he came with a much larger army. Furthermore, we have some more details. We're told that Edmund arranged his most skilled and experienced forces on the front line, which was wise, as he likely only had a few truly veteran warriors, and he would need their courage to hold the army together. John of Worcester also tells us that Edmund walked amongst his army before battle and called many of the fighters by name, letting them know that their king wasn't just some far-off idea. He was a man, a man who knew their name and knew their face. He was a comrade. And then Edmund reminded them that they were fighting for their children, for their wives, and for their homes. So they weren't just fighting for him. This army were fighting for themselves. It was a clever speech, and predictably, the army roared in anticipation of battle. Then, on Edmund's signal, the horns blared and the English shield wall advanced, slowly, deliberately, and Edmund took his place in that shield wall. He was going to fight alongside his men. Across the field were the Danes. And the Chronicle tells us that Edric Strayona, along with an unknown noble named Elfmar the Darling, were leading the Danish forces. Another source claims that the army was led by Canute, and still another says it was led by Thorkel, who was eager to secure his position with Canute. No one can seem to agree precisely who was leading this army of Danes, and that's unfortunate, because the Chronicle tells us that as the forces clashed, the leaders of the armies met each other in battle which meant that Edmund was toe-to-toe -to -toe with his adversary, possibly even Edric Strayona. And John of Worcester adds a critical detail about this fight. Specifically, it's about the army and who was in it. He says that in this battle, the men of Wiltshire and Hampshire were fighting for the Danes. And that would be in line with what we see in the Chronicle, 
where we see that not all of Wessex had come to Edmund's banner. Instead, it was mostly just the western shires and parts of the Midlands. Furthermore, it also would explain why Edmund was operating in this border region. He was in friendly lands, but he was trying to expand his territory. And all of this is important because it means that this battle, even though it was a fight between the Danish and West Saxon dynasties, was actually being fought by two mostly English armies. So this was civil war. And the Chronicle tells us that, quote, much slaughter was made on either side, end quote. But for all the bloodshed, neither army could overcome the other. And eventually, quote, the armies separated of their own accord, end quote. And that's where the Chronicle's account stops. But John continues. He says that after that first day of fighting, the armies once again clashed on the following day. And just as the English began to break through their enemy's shield wall, just as the Danes appeared to be on the verge of losing, Edric Strayona held up the head of a man who looked like the king and shouted that he had just struck down Edmund and that the English cause was lost. And for a moment, the English army wavered. But it was only a moment. Edric was Edric. Not exactly the most reliable of sources. And besides, he was Danish now. Who would trust him? And wait a minute, Edmund was still in the shield wall right there. Very much alive and still fighting. And at least according to this account, what had happened is Edric lopped off the head of a fellow Saxon named Osmer and tried to spark a rout by claiming that it was Edmund's. But it didn't work, and the English morale held. However, that moment of uncertainty had cost them the momentum. The Danes were able to reform their battle lines, and the fight drifted back into a stalemate that was eventually broken off once again at sunset. And with that, the battle was over. And I'm not sure if that Edric thing really happened. It certainly seems in character for him, but John of Worcester is the only source who mentions the event. So it's a bit suspicious. But that being said, it's uncontested that this was a bloody and brutal fight that ended in a draw. Neither the Danes nor the English had the upper hand. But Edmund didn't need to win this battle. King Edmund only needed to not lose. You see, King Canute had control of a massive army that he brought over from Denmark. And he had the Vikings, And he had the military support of vast portions of England, all at his command. Edmund, on the other hand, was just some insurgent rebel with a small group of loyal supporters living on the edges of the kingdom. In this fight, Canute had to win. Anything less was a victory for Edmund. And so by surviving, and by forcing Canute's army into a stalemate, suddenly, Edmund looked powerful. And that gave him the momentum he needed to draw even more fighters to his cause. He was done with small-time skirmishes now. It was time to leave this border region and take the fight directly to Canute. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and you can join any of our communities by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.